A different future starts with you. That's why GoDaddy does more than help you find a name. You can create, sell, and get found online. So any small business could be a driving force to create change or build an empire. We know old ideas aren't cutting it anymore. So we're calling for a new generation of thinking. Your way of thinking. So whatever you have in mind that will help make a different future, find everything you need to get started at GoDaddy.com. Because the future isn't decided yet. It's up to us to make it happen. Start different at GoDaddy.com. If you've recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today. This is an ode to Napa cabbage. Of all the cabbages on all the cabbage farms, only you have the crisp crunch worthy of our Bibigo Korean dumplings. No other cabbage would do, because no other cabbage tastes like you. We love you, Napa Cabbage. Just don't tell Green Onion. Napa Cabbage, one of many obsessively crafted ingredients in every hearty, flavorful Korean dumpling from Bibigo. Go handcrafted. Go Bibigo. Authentic Korean dumplings now in the freezer aisle. It's the Innovation Podcast with Mark Reed Edwards and Garnett Harriman. Let's start the show. Hey, Garnett, how's it going? Going great. Got uh, got sports on my mind these days, sports tech and innovation. What are you thinking yeah. about? Well, we are going to talk about opportunity zones soon. So I thought in this one-on-one we could maybe tackle that. And then just a couple of minutes ago as we were preparing for this, we talked for quite a while about esports and kind of the dynamics of what's going on that's causing esports to grow that is a really interesting line of thinking. So I thought maybe we could end with that. But opportunity zones is a concept that we're hearing a lot about. And uh, there was legislation, I think, last summer that kind of pushed it into reality. Uh, What's up with that? Well, opportunity zones are brand new. They were formed as a result of an act passed by Congress and and some point during this, I'll, I'll give you the name of the, the, the name of the actual litigation uh, legislation, rather. But um, the, the long and the short of it is this. Uh, and there's a little, some backstory. There's some prov- provenance on it. It was started under Obama, but shockingly enough, approved under Trump. It has a lot of sort of social venture, social entrepreneurship energy behind it. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, it's a great investment vehicle. The basic concept is pretty simple. You take the sale of an asset, and the asset doesn't have to be something like real estate, although that is one of the use cases that, that fits well. It could also be the sale of stock, or, or, or it could just be cash that you have to invest. Mm-hmm. And put it into a vehicle that, that is self-reporting as an opportunity zone fund. And, you know, the Opportunity Zone Fund, in addition to the self-reporting, it has to basically be, you know, has to have an investment strategy focused on, you know, very specific things. Affordable housing is the big thing in the real estate class. But then it's also able to invest in enterprises, local enterprises, Mm -hmm. startups, tech-focused enterprises. And the the whole concept is basically to, to create affordable housing as well as overall economic development in places like the inner city in particular, and also rural areas. You know, the inner city and rural areas being places that aren't typically the focus of a lot of venture and private equity investing. So if the fund checks all the boxes according to the requirements, 
the capital gains that come out of the fund are completely sheltered. So you go from whatever the capital gains rate is to zero. Mm -hmm. Not only that, the longer you hold it, the longer the investor leaves his or her money in the fund, the basis can be reduced. So you have to sort of look at the accounting arcana, but the basic concept is if I put in you know, a million dollars, I can get a, as much as a 15% reduction so that not, not only am I not paying capital gains, but I, a, any sort of taxes associated with that investment would be reduced by 15% if I let it stay long enough. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. So the uninitiated, you know, folks who aren't used to, to looking at the way investment vehicles create, you know, ROI and ROE, that kind of head start has a very simple upshot that I think everyone can appreciate. It lowers the bar for the performance on the investments that come out of that fund significantly because it's so tax advantaged. So netting out all the arcana and the bullshit, you can get venture capital-like returns, 20 and 25 and 30% returns on your money for investments that are far less risky than typical venture-type investment. Right. That's like having your cake and eating it too. That's, you know, forgive my French, that's fucking amazing. <laughs> yeah, so, so what kinds of things are you looking at or colleagues looking at? What kinds of things are happening in these opportunity zones? I've got a website up that uh, shows where um, opportunity zones are throughout the country. And there is a large swath of, I know. of uh, I opportunity zones right in the middle of the country and in you know on on either coast there there's places you know that that look ripe for uh, opportunity zones as well so so what's happening what kinds of investments are these industrial things you know what kinds of things are happening you know i i don't know how it's going to shake out in the middle of the country to be perfectly honest um, there's if, if you dig deep enough you start to see that some of the stuff in the middle of the country is in is in those rural areas or or in secondary that's being generous, probably more like tertiary type city markets. You know, the overwhelming conclusion for most coastal money, you know, east coast or west coast is who gives a shit. Right. There's not a lot of potential upside necessarily in in some of those areas that you described in the middle of the country. That's you know, I'm sure we're gonna get hate mail from. Uh, St. Louis and Chicago and Minnesota, but it, those aren't necessarily the area. I'm, you know, I don't know what there is to invest in in Wyoming per se. I don't know what there is to invest in in North Dakota, South Dakota. So that's a tricky thing to comment on. And, and you know, so even on the East Coast and the West Coast, and some of the bigger actual secondary markets, actual primary city markets around the country, there's plenty to bite into. There's plenty to sort of look at there. And I should preface any sort of commentary with, with this. It, this is the, literally the dawn. This is, this is like the 6 a.m. Mm. of a very long week ahead of us. Yeah. This is 6 a.m. on Monday, and, and honestly, the jury is going to be out until Sunday at, at midnight or something, right? We got a long, yeah. we, have, we have a good stretch ahead of us till we are at the stage right now where I would say there's been fewer than a dozen funds actually raised that are specifically you know, meaning all fi finished with the fundraising. I mean, there's probably scores of funds that are in progress, but there's probably a dozen or less funds that are completed that are focused on being and acting and, you know, conducting themselves as an opportunity zone fund. 
that were marketed as an opportunity zone fund and, and, and will conduct themselves that way. So it's kind of a wild west at the moment. And part of the really interesting thing that you see even in these developed cities, right, primary and secondary city markets, the opportunity zones that are designated include some very counterintuitive regions. Mm. So the opportunity zone in Los Angeles is something I've been studying. There's a big piece of the opportunity zone in Los Angeles that goes right through Hollywood. There's a big piece that goes through basically South LA, which yeah. is, you know, not, not, not the nicest of neighborhoods necessarily, but certainly, you know, lower middle class, middle class type neighborhoods, which counterintuitive. There's a piece of, there's a piece of that, that literally adjacent to, it's across the street from uh, the LA Lakers stadium. Like it just, it, it's, I think, and, and I've studied the Chicago Opportunity Zone a little bit. There's something very similar, like across the street from White Sox Stadium, there, it, it's the Opportunity Zone. Yeah, and, and looking at the map right now in L.A., I mean, there's a huge, huge. band that goes right through the center of L.A. Yep, it's south and central. Yep, yep, that's exactly right. What's interesting is I zoom out on this map. All of Puerto Rico is an opportunity zone. That's a, that's a huge. I, I was going to mention that actually. That that's a that's a very interesting thing. I mean, clearly it's to do with the need, right? Yeah. Post natural disaster, there's an unusual level of need. Plus, it's you know in the U.S. Plus, it's essentially a resort island, yeah. right? I mean, so the combination of el of macro things going on there could be very exciting to watch for sure. Right. I, I don't have any firsthand contact with it, but I, it's one of the things that, that I'm definitely watching. I think that so there's something else happening. There's another theme that's emerging in this emerging investment segment or investment market of the opportunity zones. So in the last couple of months, there have been a couple of significant nonprofits. There's a nonprofit called Smart Growth America that's very well respected and very well partnered and, you know, has a pretty long reach as far as its research and policy initiatives. And they came out with a study that basically says that they focused a lot on the West Coast cities like Seattle and Portland and San yeah. Francisco. And they were saying that basically the Opportunity Zone, despite its provenances as being, you know, set up for community development and affordable housing development, is going to fail miserably in certain cities like those those three I mentioned mm. because investors are coming in and essentially acting like carpetbaggers. They're, they're going to put their money into investments. It's going to gentrify the neighborhoods because there's such a sure. strong need for it with all these young people coming into the tech market in those cities. And the real estate prices are going to go up and all of the locals will be left you know, holding the bag and left out mm. of the right. wealth creation, not only around real estate, asset appreciation, but also around jobs creation. Even though it's 6 a.m. on Monday morning, right, according to my metaphor, there's a backlash already yeah. against investors using this as a vehicle. And so I'm going to go, I'm going to make a prediction. There are going to be some major, for instance, there's a group called CIM that just raised, I think, a $100 million fund. And that's based around LA and Hollywood. I will make you a prediction. There will be some of these larger funds, you know, let's say 50 million and up that come out and they will in major cities, primary and, and secondary type, you know, markets, and they will have trouble putting the money to work. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because of the, the backlash. You know, I, I just think the climate in this country is so focused on identifying these 
drivers of divisiveness, these drivers of like wealth gaps, among other things, that no one's going to sit still and watch that sort of stuff happen. Conversely, I think there's room for much smaller investment pools, 15 million, 12 million, 20 million, whatever, that have much more of a community-centric, inclusive type strategy. You know, that take the time to do the legwork and the groundwork for coalition building and ecosystem building and, you know, who have their mission statements in the right place. And I think some of those funds will do very well for themselves. It's going to be interesting to watch, actually. You know, it's kind of like impact investing in a way. Right. So it may be a a category of that. It's it's very much related. That would be. Yep. I I would say this would be a segment of that. and, And it definitely matches that macro economic trend and that macro social zeitgeist it is definitely a part of that yeah yep all right speaking of making the world a better place impact investing how about esports you know uh, (laughs) making the world safe for kids so that they don't get hurt playing football you know uh that's a good one that's a good segue it's like uh the first ever first ever (laughs) concussion free pro sports yeah (laughs) Well, unless you jump up from your chair and hit your head on the ceiling or something, I guess that could happen. But it's interesting. Esports were kind of made fun of a few years ago. There was just, you know, snot-nosed kids yep. in, in their basement playing sports. And then yep. people started to be able to make money doing this. Yep. And now you can make a lot of money doing this. And that, you know, pricks up the ears of anybody, uh, you know, in, in uh, business. And, and so... Uh, I think there are esports you can see on regular TV, not just Twitch. I think ESPN or one of those networks runs esports on occasion. But you and I have kind of a shared belief that within 10, 20 years, some period of time, that in America, the bulk of sports that we tune into on the weekends or weeknights won't exist, certainly not in their current form because of a lot of different things, but specifically football because of injuries and, and CTE and, and you know all the, all the things surrounding that, and that eSports will kind of fill that void. Did I characterize that right? I spoke for you. I know that. So I'll let you speak now. I think you're more than capable of speaking for me. You and I spent a lot of time brainstorming over these things, so I think we know each other's positions pretty well. Uh, I, that was an absolutely accurate characterization, and I, I think it takes it takes a little bit of um, I don't know energy to sort of project yourself twenty years into the future and and sort of think big trends, macro developments, you know, big social changes. But I think when you start being comfortable looking at that type of you know meta calculus, right? Mm. I think. Some of the conclusions that come out of that macro analysis are not good for pro sports leagues as we know them today. Yeah. The big three, right? The big three, NFL, uh, NBA, MLB, can, you know, have a quick, quick scan. It's beyond me to think that basically the NFL can survive, you know, in its current form in a post shareholder class action concussion lawsuit world (laughs) you know uh that that when the when the you know i know they're getting hit with a steady stream of them but i I think there is going to be um you know 
uh, one or more massive MDL, multi-district litigation class action lawsuits that end up costing them billions. Yeah. And I think when that happens, the biggest blow to them is not going to be the economic part. It, the biggest blow is going to be that every mother and father in the country that hadn't already changed their mind about letting their you know, eight-year-old or 12-year-old play contact football will change their mind. Mm. And the negative exposure and the negative PR that will come out of that will have intergenerational consequences. You and I have talked about the feeder system already breaking down for NFL, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, lots of moms and dads are not letting their kids play contact football at, at age eight or nine or 10. So that's, that's already changing. The sad truth of it is that all, the NFL is like the poster child for what's wrong with U.S.-based pro sports. My humble opinion is that the unifying element is that all of these pro sports are built for excess. And I'm um, Pretty sure a lot of people would grok that intuitively, but you know, I'll give you some of my take on excess. Excess, uh, you know, meaning you know, uh, body type getting bigger and and yeah. stronger yeah. and and more freakishly, you know, developed as far as musculature. Excess as far as violence. Excess as far as you know uh, the type of hitting and tackling that that's typically condoned on the field. Rule, you know, rule changes, you know. Uh, you know, the recent spate of rule changes aside, this is, you know, it's a fairly bloodthirsty sport. It's yeah, fairly, yeah. it's fairly excessive. People celebrate, you know, knocking the other guy out in ways that are only really present in martial arts or boxing or MMA. It's just, you know, strange to think of in a team sport. NBA built for people of a certain stature, right? Certain height, certain strength and musculature. And then the, the MLB is excessive. In its romance of boredom, <laughs> basically. Yeah, it's a great game, but it's too slow. <laughs> it's a great game to play. Yeah. It's a great game to play. It's not a great game to watch. That's not good. Yeah, I think that, fortunately, for the most part, they've figured out the safety issues, like getting hit in the face with a baseball, things like that. But it really is a kind of lifestyle issue for MLB, figuring out how to engage younger people in watching that pastime. Yep. I think, you're, I think you're absolutely right. COVID-19 patients need your help. If you fully recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have the antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients recover. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today to schedule an appointment to donate blood. That's V-I-T-A-L-A-N-T dot org. Help save lives and schedule your appointment at Vitalant.org. You could help save lives. So where eSports comes in. Yeah, that's where eSports comes in. You can play these games. You can watch professionals play these games. And nobody gets hurt. And it doesn't have to take four hours to watch a nine-inning baseball game, right? Yep. That's exactly right. You know, eSports has more at my working... Yeah, trying to trying to make sense of the world around me all the time, and especially as an investor, you know, my my investment thesis about esports is that it has way more in common with soccer, mm. you know, or what the rest of the world calls football outside of the U.S. In that it 
you know, you've made the observation yourself to me in, in our conversations that soccer really requires, you know, uh, some flat ground and not, not even necessarily marked as a soccer field and, and, and a ball. Right. Not even regulation size ball. I've seen kids all over the world play soccer with things that look like Nerf balls to me, but whatever. Yeah. You know, so all that's good. Esports, obviously, it requires, you know, more technology and, and an internet connection, you know, for the most part. But by and large, it requires far less equipment, you know, human and technology infrastructure, uh, media infrastructure. It requires a lot less than the big three U.S.-based pro sports leagues. You know, esports have been busily like stealing from the playbook, and no pun intended, <laughs> of the media coverage of how people watch the other, you know, pro sports leagues, you know, in that you have these high production values, you have these, you know, you have these broadcasts, you have these live streams, you know, all that stuff. And, and there's a lot of like glitzy production value around that stuff. And there's organized teams and there's owners of teams. And so that's, you know, all of that's familiar, but fundamentally the people up on the stage playing sports competitively against players and other teams, are not freakishly big, strong, mm. fast, muscled. <laughs> you know, they're kind of like geeky everyman. Right. Every person. So yeah. oh, that's another thing, dude. Think about that. It's inherently co-ed. I mean, there's literally yeah. nothing yeah. that stops a woman from playing at the same level of, uh, of a man in any of these games. Nothing. Yeah, it's more e egalitarian. It's inherently gender equal or gender neutral, right? So some people may say, well, but it's contrived. And, and my, my response to that will be like the NFL isn't contrived. Exactly. Exactly. You, know? you could look back at the history of the game and then correlate that with rules changes by year, by decade, and, and you'll, you'll see how contrived it is. And I enjoy football, so I, I enjoy... How do I? I, mean, I grew up watching. What, what's kind of funny about football, I also watched a lot of F1. I, I, I'm a big F1 fan. And in F1, there has been such amazing development in protecting the driver mm. that deaths, which used to be commonplace in F1, are now rare. They've figured out how to protect the driver. In football, they put helmets on and things like that, but they haven't really figured out how to protect the quarterback from heinous injury to their knee or to their head, and they haven't figured out how to protect other players. There's been a kind of show of making changes to the helmets, but they really haven't done anything substantive to prevent these really horrible injuries, whereas some other sports have addressed it. And, and, and it's limited in what they can do. If you, well, yeah, what can you do? Yeah. If you think through the, the opposing forces here, right? So the narrative value, right? The, the dramatic or theatrical value of pro football in particular has to do with this heroic male versus male struggle. It taps into something absolutely iconic and primeval, literally like Spartans versus Athenians. And yeah. Maybe not so ironically, there are plenty of teams around the country that are called Spartans. But, you know, it, it has this militaristic do or die, battle cry type ethos around the narrative. And so 
if you worked, even if even if pro football were to succeed at technologizing the hell out of the the danger and regulating the danger via a spate of new rules and stiff penalties for enforcement and all this kind of stuff, even if that were to happen, the outcome would still be as dire as I am forecasting and you're forecasting. Yeah. The game would change so much it would basically dilute itself out of existence. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it, yeah, it'd be, it'd be flag football or something, which right? is totally fine. Yeah. But you know, no one, you know, yeah. and last time I checked NBC and CBS and ABC and ESPN really don't give a shit about paying millions of dollars for the broadcast rights for the world flag football league. You know, they really yeah. don't care. And there's, there's a reason for that. What's interesting is, you know, we're talking esports here. We're talking, you know, big rights packages that these networks are willing to pay for. But it's that whole business is being turned on its head uh, with, uh, you know, services like Netflix and Amazon Prime, wh where people's viewing habits are changing. And there's so much else that you can watch esports being one of those things so the the base of viewers available to watch the super bowl or the world series or just a regular game on a sunday afternoon is getting smaller because people do other things and that's what funds the advertising for the networks to pay these billions of dollars and so that's just fundamentally changing. So these huge rights packages, there'll probably be a few more of these to happen in the next five, ten years. But eventually that money just isn't going to be there. Yep. Yep. And, um, you know, some of them were farsighted entertain, you know, broadcast conglomerates, right? So are, are starting to try to pivot and figure it out and figure out how to how to apply some of the old broadcast licensing models to what's happening in 2018. That's this is not, not long ago. Yeah. There were two milestones, both of them by Disney. In July, made a deal with uh, video game publisher Activision Blizzard to broadcast Overwatch League. Uh, that's their you know, marquee uh, gaming property. Yeah. You know, on multiple Disney channels. Then they followed that up in November 2018, and they made a, another deal with a, uh, a, a video game publisher, Jam City. So think, of, think mm -hmm. about how the world is changing, right? If, if you weren't watching these two milestones in the deal rags, like I, you know, I read a lot of deal rags about, about investment deals and licensing deals. And um, if you were not watching this, you, you, you wouldn't know that, the, you know, the same company associated with with an entertainment property that goes back to the 1920s, 1930s, whenever whenever Mickey Mouse first came out, is trying to get its foot, you know, one foot squarely planted into the future of esports. That's yeah. That's a big data point for you know directional data point for where the where the market is headed. So NF the NFL and MLB will be around in some form for a while, but esports will go really mainstream before those two sports that I just mentioned start to fade away. What, what do you think the timing is for that? Okay, so it depends on what that means, right? So the, the, the mainstreaming of esports as far as like entertainment broadcasting, I think. Yeah. So I think the live, you know, audience sort of viewing 
of these spectacles, esports spectacles, is is going to be analogous to what we saw in the past with um, pro sports. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure the people at home actually want to watch it the same way that the people at home would have been watching pro sports. Sure, and I think that's part of the appeal, and that's a, that's a generational difference in my opinion. You know, the fact that I can you know, watch my favorite Fortnite player on Twitch at all hours of the day and night. It just has to be a time when when he decides he, he's playing Yeah. versus, you know, Sunday afternoon at 6 p.m. or 4 p.m. or whatever, right? That whole that whole notion of like, you know, appointment viewing, I think is going to go out the window with, with esports and already has with the rise of Twitch. The Twitch network has as many views of, of its live stream, collective live stream broadcast as YouTube does. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, you know, YouTube is a juggernaut unto itself, but also it's a decade old, you know, uh, or more. Uh, Twitch is a couple of years old, three years old. Yeah. Uh, that, that's astonishing. You know, I'm pretty sure in the next year or so, they're going to just surpass YouTube. So the, the future is around, you know, li gaming live streamers like, like Twitch, not, not around YouTube. You know, YouTube's going to be pretty profitable for lots of other reasons, but What's really exciting about esports, in my opinion, and, I, and you know, not surprisingly, these are some of the investments that I'm looking at personally, and, and you know, in some of the investment groups that I belong. I'm I'm really excited about where the mainstream broadcasting concept, you know, even though that's going to be different than previous mainstream broadcast, where that starts to connect up to major brands, especially consumer product goods. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so right now, if you think about it, there really isn't a platform for connecting brands to either the live streamers themselves, the game players, or, or the fan base, the, the viewers of the live streamers. There's no real way to connect brands to them. Obviously, that has to be solved. Right. Um, right. And, and, and that has to be, or, and there are probably plenty of room for multiple solutions to that. But, you know, there's nothing out there. You know, if I, if I wanted to sell Kraft American cheese slices to, you know, kids sitting on the couch, which not such a, not, not necessarily a bad product market fit, pretty good fit actually. I there's currently no way to do that, and yeah. and that has to that has to change. Oh, it'll be interesting to watch, won't it? Yeah, it's a it's an exciting little sort of you know sweet spot in the Venn diagram of some of these bigger trends to 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 keep an eye out for. Yeah, I wonder whether there there will be any esports related to opportunity zones that what we discussed earlier. It'd be interesting to see if that'll if that'll happen. It's stranger things have happened, and it makes a lot of sense, right? Because you know, in, at least in the cities, the opportunity zones are, are in places like the inner cities, and the and God knows there are plenty of kids in the inner cities that play games and play esports. There's a long tradition of putting stadia in the inner cities, you know, because it's central and people, it's easy to get to and there's you know, typically yeah. tax breaks that go with it. So, you know, a, a lot of the elements that would have had pro sports being situated in and around inner cities actually make sense for esports as well. And it'll, uh, I think one of the enablers here will be ubiquitous 5G, something that then is available to people everywhere, and the technology can, is portable. They can take their devices with them and play these games or watch these games no matter where they are. Yeah, and you can, you know, some of that already exists just with you know standard mobility stuff, but it's hard to be away from your console, right, when you're playing a game and live streaming it. 
So yeah, maybe there'll be virtual, you know, or AR augmented reality type consoles that allow you to play wherever you are in the world, uh, headsets. So there's already a technology that utilizes empty glass storefronts to create digital billboards. Mm. Maybe, yeah. maybe people are going to play in the, in the inner city on empty glass doorfronts, you know, when you can yeah. project. Yeah. When you can project the console and the game on any glass storefront that is in an urban area. I don't know. Stranger things have happened. I, I get the sense that we will probably talk about this quite a lot in our series of programs. And hear from experts and you know inventors and entrepreneurs who are on the front lines of making some of these trends uh, come together. All right, next time, Garnett and I are talking with Panos Mutafis, co-founder of Zenus, a Houston-based company that is at the cutting edge of facial recognition. We also have Peter Stewart of Outlier Capital lined up for a chat that continues our discussion of Opportunity Zones. Plus, we have Mark Gallagher, a world-renowned expert on Formula One scheduled. He'll chat about the safety innovations in F1, as well as the esports angle. See, it all makes sense. Lots more to come here on the iPod. Thanks for joining Garnett and Mark on the Innovation Podcast. Visit innovationpodcast.co to subscribe and listen to other episodes. You've never tried to eyeball six feet as often as you do now. You wear a mask, you wash your hands, and you've stayed within the walls of your apartment for more hours than you care to add up. But unless you live in a smoke-free building, you're not exactly home free. Secondhand smoke drifting through the cracks in walls or sink drains carries toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. And right now, lung health is key. Go to tobaccofreeca.com to learn how to stay safe.